Well, we come once again this morning to the book of Romans, and in fact, we are 11 chapters into it, and plan to finish chapter 11 this morning and move on in weeks to come to that more practical and more hortatory, more exhortations that begin with Romans 12 and verse 1. Now, as I uh, speak to you this morning, I'm going to be editing on the fly uh, from this uh, PowerPoint, but I want to remind you what we've seen, these various sections in the book of Romans. There is this universal need of the gospel. That is because Jew and Gentile alike are under the condemnation of God, and no one will be opening their mouth objecting in the day of judgment. Then we come into that section of Romans that deals with justification or the forgiving grace of the gospel. And from chapter 5, we move into chapter 6 and see sanctification or the transforming grace of the gospel. And then we have begun and been several weeks in Romans 9 and following on this international defense or this international spread of the gospel. The gospel is you need to believe from your heart and confess with your mouth, believe from your heart that Christ is raised from the dead, confess with your mouth that he is Lord, and if you'll do this, you will be saved. And this is true of Jew and Gentile alike, and the gospel is to be shared to the ends of of the earth. And then as we come to the conclusion of Romans 11, we'll see something of the life-changing relevance of the gospel, or this is to say that largely the great sections of doctrinal truth have been laid out for us in these first 11 chapters. And we find that one way of viewing Romans chapter 11 is that there are these successive ways, waves where God has saved, primarily in the Old Testament, the Jews, then Gentiles with the age of Christ, and then there will be a time of gathering in of Jews towards the end of time, and some posit that even after that, that all the Gentiles alive will be uh, converted. The view that I am suggesting to you for uh, Romans 11 is that largely there were Gentiles saved with largely uh, Jews saved in the Old Testament, some Gentiles. Now, largely, the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. There will be some Jews that are saved, and that number may be large, it may be smaller. It's hard to say, but this is something of the plan that is before us. And I want to acknowledge that as we look at this, it's not that we are to say, well, this is my view on one of the most contested chapters in all of the Bible and a pox on anybody else's house if they dare to differ from me. No, there are a whole spectrum of believers that would embrace something of these successive waves 
And in fact, some of those men that you have heard quoted most frequently in this study, uh, Professor Murray and uh, Dr. Leon Morris, would have a view that is different from my own. And so it's an unusual situation where I've been grasping hold of the hand of Professor Murray more tightly than anyone else working through the book of Romans. I've kind of felt myself uncomfortable with the handling of the, uh, the text. So I want to speak uh, and recognize that there are good and godly Christians who have a view that is uh, different uh, from my own. If there is a great ingathering of the Jews at the end of time, my view I don't think precludes that. It's just not that I see that as a revealed prophecy in this section. The great issue is who are God's true people? And when we are asking who is the old Israel, if we come to see that Paul is redefining Israel in the course of the book of Romans, then when we come to something of a pinnacle text, a climactic text of Romans 11 and verse 26, and we're talking about all Israel, will we simply look at the verse in front of it, or will we look at the larger redefining of the nation of Israel that Paul has been systematically laying out for us. Whatever our particular view on how God is going to save Jews and Gentiles, they are being saved. And so we can come together and join in this great praise that is due uh, to our God. And as we do so, I want to remind you of what we have seen already in the book of Romans. Do you remember how Paul closed down that section on sanctification there in eight, chapter 8? Well, here is this looking back, and it's, and it's a moving from the, the laying out of truth to more of an experience of worship and more of a sensing of the practical benefits of this uh, sanctification. But notice, even in this little summary, Paul reaches back to the justification section that he's already laid out, and I'll read only from verse 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that conclusion... Paul looks back to justification as well. He leads the Roman believers in a very practical meditation that exalts God and encourages God's people. And when we come to the end of the whole book, we're going to find a similar sort of encouraging and exalting, encouraging the people of God and exalting God. 
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And now we come to the end of this section 9 through 11, this international spread of the gospel. And there will be a decided turn to a more practical emphasis. And how is it that Paul is going to close this section? Well, He gives us this doxology that we've already read, but we want to set it in its context. And the the sectional setting can be seen as we're reflecting just on things back in chapter 11 more. The rapturous praise with which Paul concludes this section of the letter will appear in its full clarity when it is placed beside the heartbroken introduction to this section. The range of Paul's emotions is so wide as to reach from this pain for lost Israel to this rapturous adoration of God and of his ways ways in saving so many Jews and so many Gentiles. Remember where this section began. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Is there any place else where you can try to descend with, with Paul with something of his grief and his sadness? That's how this section on the international spread of the gospel begins, and this is how it ends. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him or all things to him be glory forever. Amen. The immediate setting looks back to verse 32, right before it, right? For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And I would suggest that as he is doing this, that Paul is showing us the pile of his logs for his praise fire. And it's not just limited to 9 through 11, but when we're talking about God's mercy coming, well, that's going to take us back to universal condemnation, isn't it? It's going to take us back to God's forgiving grace. It's going to take us back to God's transforming grace. And so in a sense, Romans 11 does not just conclude, this doxology does not just conclude 9, 10, 11, but it seems to be reaching 
back all the way to what God has done in the past. Well, with that, if you want to transition to your handout sheet, and we'll come to see, uh, first of all, Roman numeral one, something here of the heartfelt praise, the heartfelt praise for God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Notice with me, A, the fitting emotion for our praise. Oh, the depth of the riches. The little word oh is not here as an expression of fear or surprise, but it is here as a response of overwhelming wonder. It's not Paul is walking into a kind of dark room and he sees somebody that he wasn't planning on seeing and oh, But this is after he has reflected on God's truth and more of God's truth and more of God's truth. It has impacted him in his being and he is saying, oh, oh my God, you are indeed wonderful. It's a response of gratitude and awe which is the response of every true child of God when they understand what God has done in order to get them forgiven and get them to heaven. God sent his only son, humbling him so that he would join to himself true humanity that he would be willing to further humble himself to the death on the Roman cross, that he would be raised from the dead. When the Holy Spirit helps you to see your sin, and when you are weeping in a sense of shame over what your life is before the Holy God, And then you see this wonderful provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will say with Paul, Oh, oh, the riches, the depth of the riches, and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. God the Holy Spirit has come to me, the unholy individual, and brought me to spiritual life. And now he dwells within me to sanctify me and suit me for heaven. Oh, the riches of God. Secondly, B, three characteristics of God for our praise. Three particular logs to go on the fire of our praise. Let me just mention quickly the New King James, New American Standard, lists two characteristics. They would read something like, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And there's a true sense in that. And it's an accurate translation. But what we have here in the ESV is as well a good translation 
And so I think it's more of how do you organize this? I'll go with the three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. First of all, then, a little number one under B. The amazing depth of God riches. And if riches is its own category, then riches most often refers to God's mercy, his kindness, and his grace in saving us. Romans 2 and verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 9 and verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. There's all this riches that God has for that one who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We find it in Ephesians 2 and verse 7, so that in the ages, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you're here this morning, if you're an unbeliever, and you're trying to block God out of your world, you're saying, I don't know why that guy's getting emotional, why he's getting worked up. If we do things that somebody regards as sin, it's it's no big deal. It doesn't matter. And if you're forgiven or not, it doesn't really matter. Because you know what? The place that God has in my world, in my thinking, is like that pencil mark that you see on the on the stripe just inside here, that tree. You see that little pencil mark up there? That represents the significance of God. And isn't that the thinking of the world? Are you still into that faith thing? Are, are you still believing God and all that stuff? It's, it's like... There's really no point to this. So why would you get all focused on something that is so insignificant as a little pencil dot on this whole front wall? Is that how we ought to think of God? All things are from him. All things are through him. And all things are back to him. So instead of a little pencil mark, let's bring the screen down. Let's have the most vivid display of glory on the screen. And let's say God is front and center. Not a pencil dot. And this comes in this depth of his riches. Paul says in Ephesians 2, in the coming ages, we're going to need eternity for us to begin to get a sense of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Ephesians 3 and verse 8, Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What was his content? 
of the gospel? Well, I'm going to go share with them the riches. I'm going to go share with them the unsearchable riches that are found in Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm going to talk to them about their sin. And then I'm going to talk to them about God's forgiving grace and then transforming grace and how God is sovereign in choosing. And all of that I can summarize by saying I'm going to preach to them the unsearchable riches of Christ. What might he say? Well, in Romans 3 and verse 19... Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. If you're not a believer, then you need to think about the coming day of judgment. And God is saying out in the coming day of judgment, it will be made so abundantly plain to you that you are a violator of the law of God, that you are a rebel against God, that you deserve whatever judgment, that you won't be raising your hand and saying, now wait a minute, God. Your mouth will be shut. But then that's the bad news of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel follows upon the heels of it. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, apart from us trying to do the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. Natively, you are slated to be there in the day of judgment with your mouth shut. But instead of that, by grace and mercy, the gospel is put before you and God is willing to forgive your sins as all of your sins are loaded on Jesus at the cross and all of his perfect righteousness is given to you as a gift by grace. So there is something of the amazing depth of God's riches. Let's take up God's knowledge, the amazing depth of God's knowledge. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do with it. Wisdom is a skill in living. And God's got both. He knows how to do something, knows how to do it well. But he also knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. So David says in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me. You have mined me. You have dug so deep within me, it's like a miner going down into the earth and discovered what I am all about. My selfishness, my motivations for me, 
You've searched me and you've known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. What does that mean? Well, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. If you're a mouthy individual and you've always got some smart comment to make, oh, aren't you clever? God's more clever. He knows the smart aleck comment that you're going to make before you make it. And here's where we need to understand God's infinite knowledge. It's not that God knows all the details of the universe. That's true. But God knows all the details of the universe of me. He knows me. And God the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God, we find in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, how that Word of God with the blessing of the Spirit piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows me. God knows me here. A statement that is true of you wherever you are and whoever you are. God knows me here. Well, I think behind these closed doors, we are safe. No, you're not. God sees you as though you're naked before him at all times. The amazing depth of God's knowledge. Thirdly, the amazing depth of God's wisdom. Wisdom for man is his skill in living. And we have to seek unashamedly Proverbs to establish a life that is beautiful. Wisdom for God is building a beautiful universe, including a beautiful heaven that is filled with former rebels against God. That's pretty beautiful. Wisdom is the arrangement and adaptation of all things to fulfill His holy design. God's wisdom. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Not exactly wisdom to them. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then Paul goes into how God's wisdom is shown in his dealing with the fivefold category of humanity in descending order. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low 
and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Are you a true worshiper here this morning? We're a bunch of nobodies. We're a bunch of nobodies in the eyes of the world. And then God congratulates himself and he says, here is my wisdom. My wisdom is seen in choosing and employing a bunch of nobodies in the eyes of the world. And concludes, and because of him, the Father drawing you, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here we are to see the depth of the riches, depth of the knowledge, the depth of the wisdom of God. Now thirdly, see the incomprehensibility of God for our praise. Incomprehensible. You cannot understand it. You cannot figure it out. And it's kind of ironic that just as God unfolds something of what he's going to do with the Jew and the Gentile, and he gives us that illustration of the grain that is taken from the pile of the first fruit grain, and he gives us the illustration of the root that's got those Gentiles grafted back in it. And at the end of the day, it's still one of the most debated chapters in all of the Bible. God's thinking is difficult to comprehend. It's impossible. The incomprehensibility of our praise. And we've got to look here at the latter part of verse 33. God's judgments cannot be found. How unsearchable are his judgments. Judgments are God's decisions. Some of God's decisions are decisions to harden someone or to consign someone to eternal judgment. That's included. Why God does this, I don't really know. Romans 9 in verse 17 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, You think that you are the most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth at that time. Come on over here. I need to use you. And I have raised you to your position of prominence so there would be a little bit of a contest between you and I, between you and me. And guess what? Pharaoh lost. Did you hear about Pharaoh of Egypt? He's evidently dead at the bottom of the Red Sea. He opposed Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is what happened to him. Do you think that's happenstance? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? You say, preacher, I don't like that verse. I'm not really in the business of whether I like or I don't like. I'm in the business of here it is, and somehow I need to get it out of the text and into your ears and into your mind. Romans 11 and verse 7, Israel failed to obtain it, what it was seeking, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. God's judgments are unsearchable. Man cannot find out or understand Why did God do this? Why did God allow this sickness? Why did God allow this to happen to this person? The judgments of God are unsearchable. You and I cannot keep up with God. But the good thing is we don't need to keep up with God. We need to know with Paul that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And if that is true, then I don't need to understand all of the ins and outs of God's thinking. I simply need to believe him. Morris, it is interesting that in this doxology, This doxology is prompted by what we do not know about God. His judgments are unsearchable. I'm going to praise God because I don't understand everything that God is doing. Paul is not breaking into praise because Paul has been able to give a final and complete solution to some very difficult problems. He has certainly given some of the answers, but to some very important questions, the answer is still not revealed. But it is Paul's conviction that there is a solution and that the solution is in God's hands, and therefore he breaks out into this doxology. Further, in verse 33, God's judgments cannot be searched out. God's ways cannot be traced. God's ways cannot be traced. A criminal does something, you get your bloodhound and you talk to your blood, which way did he go? And the dogs, and there's, oh, we got the tracks, we've got it, we're going to. And that's the sense of this word, which literally means not to be tracked out. And Paul says, As mere men, women, boys, and girls, we cannot get God's trail. We don't know where God came from with this idea. We don't know where God is going with this idea. For God is operating on an infinitely higher level than what you and I can understand. Can you think of a verse for it? How about Isaiah 55, verse 8? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
So what do we see in verse 33? It is heartfelt praise. Now, Roman numeral two, three humbling questions. Three humbling questions highlighting man's smallness compared to God, man's smallness and incompetence compared to God. We jump right in with A, the first question, the first humbling question. Do you know how and what God thinks? Do you know how and what God thinks? This is the Septuagint, the the Greek version of the Old Testament brought back into English. Listen to it, Isaiah 40 and verse 13. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Pretty close. And, And what is meant by this question is somebody really, really close to you will know how you think. Someone who knows you really well will say, you know, I'm concerned about this matter of this ongoing trial because I'm concerned that the longer this trial goes on, it is going to wear on you and you're going to end up depressed and I don't want that and you don't want that, right? Someone who knows us well may say, You are such an intense person. When you get something before you, there's nothing else that you're seeing. Thanks, Mom. I've reflected on that a few thousand times since you've told me that. But Paul is asking us, do we know how God's mind works well enough for us to offer a word of advice to God. And to ask the question is to answer it. A limited creature cannot begin to understand the mind of the infinite creator. God's understanding is infinite. God's ways are not my ways. Still, still, at least on occasion, we like to give God our advice, don't we? God, what you're doing here is simply not right. Now, if you listen to me, God, I hope you clean up your mess. Second question. B, have you ever or will you ever be asked to advise God? Here again, that Greek translation brought back into English from Isaiah 40 and verse 13. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor to instruct him? There's a boardroom in heaven. This is envisioned by the various parties there in Job. Have you listened in the counsel of God? Did you get to go in the boardroom and hear what God was talking about in making his decision? Jeremiah 23, verse 18. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Paul, talking to the Corinthians, says the natural man just can't understand the things of God. They're folly to him. 
The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? King David had his Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, if you consulted him on what was the best thing to do in this particular circumstance, it was as if you consulted an oracle of God. He's got his Ahithophel. He's got his Hushai. These guys helped David to be wiser, helped him to know what he needed to do. God does not have counselors. God does not need them. He's the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. Who's in the boardroom? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And God resolves things by counseling his own will. Looking at the hardening of some and the God showing compassion to others, we may feel like we need to help God out. And it's right for us to pray. It's not right for us to say, oh, everything's in, you know, it's going to get us, so I don't need to pray. It's right for us to pray, but to pray according to the will of God. But we need to stop short of thinking that we are this advanced Ahithophel, that we may be Ahithophel to God. Of Jesus our Savior, it was said, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Thirdly, see, third question. Have you ever helped God out with a loan? Have you ever said, God owes me one? Even jokingly? Romans 11.35, or who has given a gift to him, to God, that he, he, the man, might be repaid? It's coming from Job 35.7. What do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? And the point is, God can finance all of his own projects. Whatever God's wisdom wills to do, God's omnipotence can perform. Still, works righteousness native to our fallen humanity assumes that a man, woman, boy, or girl can earn God's favor. If I do this, then God owes me something. And if I do this and I'm really good for this period of time, then God owes me something. And eventually God owes me heaven. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? If I am a good person, then it will all work out. God will pay for me doing the good thing. Fallen man just does not realize how devious how deceived, how depraved the human heart is. 
Fallen man likes to forget that God demands a 100% perfection. If we remember that, we're not going to be thinking, oh, good God, you owe me one. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. God, you need to save my teenage children because I have given up a lot in this life for you. God, you need to give me this new home, this bigger salary, this new car, because I have been pretty good. And Jesus said, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We do not make loans. We do not make contributions to God. But instead, we need to understand with David, who said, Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. And isn't that the truth of it? Anything that you've got to give to God came from God in the first place because all things are from him. Thirdly now, heartfelt praise, three humbling questions. Isn't it interesting that in a doxology, rise up to God and, and talk about how he, and then we come down to man, we ask three questions, all of them intended to take the air out of us? Because when the air is out of us, we're in the best shape to be worshiping God. Roman numeral three. Eternal praise to God who is the author, accomplisher, and aim of all things. It's a continuation. It begins with for or because. God needs to be lifted up. Man needs to be deflated. Because from him and through him and to him are all things. First of all, A, God is the author of all things. He's the author of the vast universe. We can get ourselves the pictures that are coming from the most powerful telescopes reaching out as far as they can now, and it's always growing. And wherever they look, whatever they show us, we see intricacy of design that argues for a designer. We can take the most powerful microscope and look down and instead of bringing it close, we're expanding to see that cell, to learn things about the atom. And the more that we descend into detail, the more we see design that argues the designer. He's the author of this vast universe But he's also the author of our salvation, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The Trinity foresaw the fall of men and angels. And the Trinity came up for a plan where Jesus became man, not angel. And God's redemption comes to those of every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue of humanity, but not 
one fallen angel. God's the author of that plan. God has created you. And because God created you, you owe God the rent of paying him the glory by simply saying, you made me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you're a believer, then God has made you a second time, created new life within you. And so then you have to pay the rent of saying, thank you, Father, for making me and preserving me physically, and thank you for making me spiritually because I never would have come to you unless your spirit had worked within me. And so now the motto of my Christian life is, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I want to do all to the glory of God. Secondly, B, God is not only the author of all things, he is the accomplisher of all things, and through him are all things. God providentially cares for this universe. He made the universe... Then Psalm 104 is going to talk about how he set the foundations so that it would never be moved. It talks about how he raises the mountains and the valleys sink down to the place that God appointed. He made springs to gush forth in the valleys, give a drink to the beasts, and the wild donkeys are there, and the birds are there singing in the branches. From your whole lofty abode in heaven, you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. God is the accomplisher. And if that were not the case, whatever is going to be on your plate at lunch would not be on your plate. And the psalmist closes, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. But then God wonderfully accomplishes salvation for all true Israel. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God starts the Christian life. And then God keeps it going. He sends his spirit and he's able to say, I'm, I'm, I'm certain nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The author, the accomplisher, and the aim. What's God aiming at? He's aiming at his glory. God works so that God may be worshipped. God works that God may be worshipped. 1 Corinthians 8 reflects again on this theme, for whom we exist. Psalm 96 and verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families 
uh, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Revelation 4, the elders are worshiping. Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. We got to pay the rent. Revelation 5, redemption. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. God works to be worshipped. If God has been working in your life and you have not been worshipping God, something is wrong. Fourthly, D, your participation in God's eternal praise, the last word, amen. Can you say it? 1 Timothy 1.17, a little doxology. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, Paul says. Paul feels compelled to jump right into the Roman worship as a participant. We already know he's a participant. He's written the doxology. He's put the doxology in their minds and in their lips, but that's not enough. So I got to jump right in there and I got to join you. Amen. I want you to know that I believe from the core of my being what I have just said to you about the praise of God. What about you? Do you care enough about paying the rent? of God's glory, that when you hear something nice, something worshipful that is said about the true and the living God, is there something within you that says, amen? And it's not how loud you say it. And it's not even if you verbalize it and somebody this far away from your mouth might hear some breath moving. I think that was an amen. But the matter is, is there faith in your heart? Because amen is saying, yes, I believe it. And here is a doxology that is offered to God. Paul composed, he says, here, I want you to have this in your minds. I want you to have it in your lips. And whoops, I forgot. I jumped back in. Amen. I'm right there with you. Is my here? If you're not an amener, I don't mean to hear it. If you are not believing from the core of your being that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, 
And if you're not confessing Jesus Christ as Lord with your lips, that's an indication there's not going to be any true praise coming out of that heart. But wherever there is true faith in the heart that believes in the hardest thing, God raised him from the dead. And wherever there is a little bit of lisping, Jesus is my Lord, then there ought to be the amen. I believe this. All things are from him, and they're through him, and they're back to him, to his glory. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, please own your word. Make your word to be like a hammer that breaks the hard, rocky heart. And make your word to be like a seed, a seed that is dropped into the heart And only by the grace and mercy of you, Spirit of God, will that seed ever germinate. But it will germinate if your power is upon it. We pray that you'd take our meditation this morning and make us to be better and more frequent worshipers of you. And we pray that you would make more worshipers of you from our midst. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.